0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: It's the Friday edition, which means we have the Friday panel coming up in about a half hour's time. But to start today's program, it is the Friday morning front burner from CBC News.
2: Hi, I'm Angela Starrett.
0: Play in an opinion based sport, uh, not a factual based sport. So it's not the NBA where at the end of the year you're holding a trophy because you made the right decisions or won the games.
2: This is Drake on stage at the Grammy Awards in 2019. God's Plan had just won Best Rap Song, and Drake is making a surprise appearance to accept. But while he's waving his fourth ever gramophone around, he's not exactly thanking the Academy.
0: Sometimes you know it—it's um, up to a bunch of people that might not understand, you know, what a mixed race kid from Canada has to say, or, uh, or 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 a fly or a fly Spanish girl from New York, or anybody else, or a brother from Houston right there, my brother Travis.
2: Well, you might also remember this as the speech where Drake got cut off.
0: You don't need this right here. I promise you, you already won. But. Next, a special Grammy performance
2: and it's part of a long history of Drake getting into it with the Grammys. I mean, this is him on Big Sean's blessings all the way back in
0: 2015.
2: On Monday, man. tensions between Drake and the Grammys escalated again. Just as the Recording Academy started its final round of voting on next year's winners, we found out Drake asked them to drop his nominations. He's now out of the running. And Drake still hasn't told us why. So today I'm talking to A Harmony, music journalist, MC, and host of Marvin's Room on CBC Music. She'll walk us through Drake's history with the Grammys, hip-hop's growing skepticism of the awards, and whether artists like Drake really need these trophies anymore. Or at all.
0: Not a long time, you know, I, I haven't had a good time in a long time, you know, I, I'm way up i feel blessed way up i feel blessed
3: up, hi harmony up, hi angela
2: so let's just get right into it uh, for the the 2022 grammy awards in in january drake was up for best rap album for certified lover boy and best rap performance for way too sexy <laughs> and again we don't have an explanation from drake as to why he he pulled out yet so i mean to speculate why could he have withdrawn
3: yeah, so there's two theories floating around about this. And one is that uh Drake has been named in several lawsuits stemming from the fatal AstroWorld festival that happened out in Houston mm. earlier this year. So some are speculating that he's withdrawing from the Grammys to try and stay uh out of out of the spotlight or lay low uh, mm. until his legal issues are resolved. But I don't think that that's it. The other theory that's floating around, and the one that makes more sense to me, is that Drake has had a long, sordid uh, history with the Grammys, and he's called them out several times for snubbing hip-hop artists, snubbing Black artists, and not just himself, but his contemporaries like The Weeknd or Pop Smoke.
0: i like, you know, with the we gonna
3: it makes sense to me that he's uh, stepped out of this year's Grammys because of the long history of of snubbing of not just him but his his peers, right. And I've also seen
2: critics say maybe Drake is just bitter. You know he's he's got forty seven Grammy nominations, but only four wins. He's only got two nods this year. What do you make of the idea that perhaps he's just a sore loser?
3: Yeah, I don't like framing Drake as a sore loser because I think that puts the spotlight solely on him and takes away from the problems that um, mm. exist within the Grammys overall. And mm. we should point out that this is not unique to Drake in terms of him only having four wins out of 47 nominations. It's a com- right. common pattern. So you see uh, Kendrick Lamar, for instance, who has 13 Grammy wins out of 37 nominations. And I remember the year that he, uh I think he was nominated for seven Uh, Grammys. And he walked away empty-handed while Macklemore took the Grammy for Best Rap Album. And even Macklemore texted Kendrick and said, you know, it should have been you. You were robbed. This wasn't really my award. It should have gone to you. Mm. And even outside of rap categories, you have artists like Beyonce, who has 28 wins out of 79 nominations. And the year that she lost uh, Album of the Year to Adele, Adele got up on stage and in her acceptance speech said, Beyonce, this should have gone to you like i don't know what happened here
4: very humbled and i'm very grateful and gracious but my artist of my life is beyonce in this album to me
3: so Mm. and even if it's not the reason why he withdrew like i said he's been very vocal about calling the grammys out on this in the past um and to call him a sore loser for that is reductive i think
2: Mm. you know i mentioned how drake's acceptance speech was was cut off in 2019
0: you don't need this right here i promise you you already won But next, a
3: special Grammy
0: performance.
2: But there was also um a big controversy the next year when the weekend didn't receive any nominations for after hours and blinding lights.
4: Ooh, lights. No,
2: this huge song um, that charted phenomenally. Um, and the weekend said, quote, the Grammys remain corrupt. How did Drake react mm-hmm. to that?
3: Drake uh, agreed. And he kind of said, you know what, at this point, we shouldn't really be surprised that the Grammys are corrupt. And he was saying that we should stop being shocked by this and kind of step back and just see the Grammys for what they are and stop expecting them to change because the institution mm. is uh, so flawed and so corrupt that there's no going back. So if they're not respecting certain genres or respecting certain artists, then why do we need them? Why are we begging for their validation? That was kind of the sentiment behind what Drake uh, posted that year.
5: Hmm.
2: And, and there's this idea that a lot of artists in hip hop are showing their frustration with the, the Grammys in recent years. What are some of the other examples we've seen?
3: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this goes back years. I remember Jay-Z mm. boycotted the Grammys back in the 90s, and he stopped showing up to the ceremonies uh, for a number of years until he started dating Beyonce and wanted to go back to kind of support her on her Grammy journey. Right. Um, but we'll see artists like Kanye West, for instance. Uh, he shot a video of himself peeing on a Grammy. Or uh, Jay-Z using his Grammy as a glass one year, or even his daughter, (laughs) Blue Ivy Carter, using her Grammy as a sippy cup. So um, (laughs) beyond that, we've heard lyrics in certain songs, et cetera, where artists have kind of vented their frustrations and kind of said, hey, if this institution doesn't respect us, we don't respect it either. And here's what we think of your trophies. Uh, We're not coming to your ceremonies or... I'm going to drink apple juice out of this Grammy to show you how <laughs> worthless it is. Uh, we're starting to see that sentiment among uh, lots of artists. And it has been apparent for several decades.
2: So since The weekend was snubbed, a lot of attention has been put on how the Recording Academy makes its nominations. Uh, the weekend said he won't even submit his music anymore because of, quote unquote, secret committees. Up until this year, how did that committee process for nominations work?
3: Yeah, it's funny because the term secret committee sounds like this wild conspiracy theory that the weekend is just plucking from the middle of the sky. But up until now, the nominations process was very strange. You had thousands of members of the Academy who were able to vote on who should be nominated for a Grammy. Um, They would submit their votes. But then there was this overarching review panel who got to look at all of the votes that came in and uh, make the final decision or veto votes, uh, depending on Mm -hmm. who they wanted on the panel. And this second vote by a review committee happened with the majority of categories. So for instance, uh, say I'm sitting on the panel. Nobody knows that I'm sitting on the panel. Nobody knows who this panel is comprised of. And I look at the uh, votes that have come in from the Academy and I say, well, hmm, there's this one artist who I know is going to draw a lot of eyes if they uh, perform at this year's Grammys. But how can I ask them to perform if they haven't even been nominated? We better slap them in there and give them a nomination so that we Wow. Can um, ultimately drive up our views. That's just an example, Um, but that is an wow. example of what the review panel had the power to do: is they could look at the votes, look at the ballots, and uh, make the final decision, even if it goes against uh, the vote of consensus.
2: Wow, that's that's so wild to me, and it's a it's a secret committee, so we don't actually. I mean, <laughs> I guess they don't call it. They call it this review panel, <laughs> right. but right. <laughs>
1: CFIS-FM, that is part one of the Friday morning front burner from CBC News, part two coming up in a moment here on After 9.
0: Let you and I hold hands and tiptoe through the colors and sounds of this season that that is unlike any other, a place of truth but also a place of magic. Hello, I'm Gip Forster, and it's time once more to set our hearts free, so join me in a journey from the past. To the present.
4: It feels like Christmas.
1: Brought to you in part by Hobby Brews and Timberline Footfitters three times daily here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. The Q3 Creative Business Hub has a large second-floor office space now available. 1,600 square feet includes four individual offices, a kitchen area, and plenty of open space to use as a common area for collaborating or add more offices. Check out our Google page for photos. To book an appointment to view or for more information, email q3building at gmail.com. Q3 Creative Business Hub, with a large office space now available at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Christmas is a time for smiles. Upgrade your smile with a visit to Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation and get your smile upgraded for Christmas. No referral required. Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building Call two five zero five six two sixty six thirty eight. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, mainly cloudy, periods of snow this morning, wind from the south at 20K, gusting to 40, a high of zero with the wind chill this morning to minus 14. Tonight, cloudy, the few flurries and periods of rain, south winds gusting to 80, the temperature steady near 1. On Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud, a 30% chance of flurries in the morning, wind from the southwest at 20, gusting to 40, the temperature steady near zero with an afternoon wind chill to minus 9.
0: Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And now part two of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News.
0: In 2019,
2: the Academy brought in its first woman president, uh, Deborah Dugan. She was removed just 10 days before last year's awards. And she launched a sexual harassment and gender discrimination complaint but what did she have to say about this voting process?
3: Yes, so Deborah Dugan was really uh, vocal about the Grammys as a whole being a boys' club, and that was part of mm-hmm. the um, complaint she filed. In terms of the um, voting process, she said that it was rigged and she used that exact word rigged, which is a really mm. a powerful word to use when you're talking about an institution like the Grammys. She said that yeah. there was an instance where she learned that there was an artist who was able to sit in on the nomination process for song of the year. And their song was one of the songs in the running. Their manager was also sitting on the Academy's board at the time. Um, and even though that artist's song came in very low in the ranking in terms of where the Academy had put it. It was something like 18th uh, in the ranking. And yet when the final ballot came out there, that song was. Um, and she wow. was saying that that's not the first instance of a gross wow. conflict of interest or the first time that something like that has happened.
2: Room. I have evidence that in another room, because uh, there were complaints made in the jazz category. And um, so just, you do have oh, evidence that
0: was, was going to be my follow up question. Do. And who, where are you going to present that?
2: I have a claim that I filed and, and I, I guess I should note that the Academy has denied all of these allegations and And Dugan and the Academy settled over her dismissal this year. Um, and so, in May, the Academy announced it would actually dissolve those review committees so nominees would be based on voting from its over eleven thousand members. is Is this problem solved
3: now? Well, I wonder about that. Part of me says that, yes, eliminating these uh, committees does solve a big problem. But the fact that these committees existed in the first place says Mm -hmm. something about the lack of integrity at the Grammys. So I wonder, it's hard to say whether that solves any problems, if there were so many problems baked into the process to begin with.
2: So after Tyler, the creator's comments last year, the Grammys dropped the urban label from its categories it also dropped world music to avoid quote connotations of colonialism
0: so it sucks that whenever we and i mean guys that look like me do anything that's genre bending or that's anything they always put it in a rapper urban category category which is and i don't like that urban word it's just a politically correct way to say the n-word to me so, when I heard- uh,
2: what did the existence of those categories in the first place tell us about the Recording Academy?
3: Well, it tells us a lot about the Academy and also about the music industry as a whole, uh, who mm-hmm. has a history of using very coded language when describing genres. Uh, mm-hmm. Tyler, the creator, kind of got at it when he won his Grammy, basically saying, you know, I make music that um, is so much more than hip hop or rap. I make pop mm-hmm. music. I make all kinds of uh, different sounding music. And you still lump me into this one urban category. And are you doing it? Because that's how the music sounds to you or because I'm black. He kind of hit it right Mm -hmm. on the nose. And a lot of the language that the music industry uses to describe uh, music is really actually describing the race of the artist or the ethnicity of the artist. Urban, for instance, is used as this catch-all euphemism for black because they don't want to call it black music, or world is silently understood as music by a non-white person uh, mm. who, who originates from outside of North America. Because when you think of it, we don't call Adele or the Beatles world music, but we reserve that term for Anjali Kijo.
0: Mm.
3: Um, So ideally, I think genres should describe a particular sound, but often they're used as coded terms to describe race. And that's certainly what Tyler was hinting at.
2: Right. And I guess I'm guessing like now that those those two labels, urban and, and world music, are gone, things aren't fixed in terms of the way artists are categorized
3: they're not fixed so for instance the world category has been eliminated but it was replaced with the term global and is that not just a synonym for the world word the <laughs> exactly it's the, like the, the same, word, exactly. it is the same <laughs> word um in my opinion the Grammys has to decide, and this is not just them. Again, it's a music industry thing. People have to decide what exactly are they trying to communicate when they come up with these words? Are mm. you trying to communicate the race or the ethnicity of an artist? If so, do that explicitly and create a best album by a white person or best album by a non-white person, best album by a person who doesn't live in North America. And the thing is, when you are as explicit as that or you're frank uh, in that way, it doesn't feel really good. It doesn't sit really well. So then you have to ask yourself. Yourself, why are we doing it? Why are we using these words like uh, urban and world and global, etc? What are we trying to say here? decide what it is you're trying to say. And if you're not, in fact, trying to segregate artists Mm -hmm. by race, then come up with words that describe the music and uh, make these words in these categories more about the music. Again, I think that's what Tyler, the creator, was hinting at, is that he makes music that fits several different genres if you listen to it from a sonic perspective. So put him in categories that fit the sound of music that he's making. Um, I can think of Little Nas X as well, um, who made Mm -hmm. a country song and Mm -hmm. it charted Mm -hmm. on the country chart and the country Mm -hmm. industry we had a really uh hard time accepting him as a country artist. And again, we have to have a real honest conversation about ourselves, about what we're trying to connote when we come up with these genre terms.
2: Yeah, and I guess like, uh, we don't know what the intention of creating these labels were, but just again, thinking back to The quote-unquote Aboriginal category for the Junos in Canada, I think like the impetus behind that was like Indigenous people just couldn't get in even though they were charting or, you know, really popular or were making incredible music. They just weren't getting into these awards, so they created this – category called the aboriginal category but then people were like well what is this is it like a global indigenous award like people playing flutes and drums and doing more traditional or is it like this woman who's haida you know a pop artist you know who has love songs who doesn't talk about anything indigenous you know and then we were having conversations like uh, a tribe called red now the hallucination when breakthrough group of the year It was like super exciting to see Indigenous people break out of those categories, but
3: then wondering, like, did we need this? Um, And that's the thing. I think it's really important to question intention. And again, unless uh, awarding institutions question their intention and get really honest about what their intentions are, we'll Mm. keep running into the same problem where we are just swapping one euphemism out for another. Um, I understand the desire to be inclusive, but um, having to create categories or certain parameters in order to remind us to be inclusive is an issue in itself.
2: Yeah. And I love the example you brought up about Little Nas X. There's also a difference between nominations and actually recognizing black artists with, mm-hmm. with the top awards. Um, I mean, the, the big four, best album, song, record, and new artist in particular. How many of the trophies are black artists actually getting in these categories?
3: So it's really interesting. The Grammys is heading into their 64th prize cycle uh, this mm. year or next year, rather in 2022. And only 10 Black artists in the history of the award have ever won album of the year. And I wow. should note within that 10, only three of them are women. So I uh, think of mm. your greats like Beyonce or Mariah Carey, Aretha Franklin, mm. even none of them wow. have ever earned this honor. Uh the last black artist to win album of the year was Herbie Hancock um and he did win for a Joni Mitchell tribute I wish I
1: hadn't I
3: Which makes me wonder whether Herbie Hancock won that award on his own merit. He's great, great artist, don't get me wrong. Or whether the vote was really for Joni Mitchell, who's a white artist, Mm. and Herbie was kind of like her proxy, it makes Mm. me wonder. I should note that in 2021, Megan Thee Stallion won Best New Artist and her won Best Song or Song of the Year for I Can't Breathe. And it's not to put an asterisk to either accomplishment or to Herbie Hancock's accomplishment or any of the artists who have won in these big categories. But in 2020, there was this grand racial reckoning reckoning across the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw it in the music industry with Blackout Tuesday. And there were several companies who were putting out statements talking about uh, standing mm-hmm. by the Black community and everyone was grappling with the murder of George Floyd, et cetera. Uh, so it's not lost on me that that was the year that the Grammys decided to award these two artists. And especially for a song like I Can't Breathe um, on hers part. And again, it's not to take away from what either artist... Um, is capable of or accomplished or their talents because they're both very talented. However, I wonder whether the Grammys made a political choice there, whether they were trying to pat themselves on the back, whether they were trying to undo years of systemic uh, racism or just nefarious voting practices by, okay, we gave this artist an award for I Can't Breathe. So now you can't say that, um, you know, we've been doing shady things behind the scenes for 63 years. it's taking my life from me I can't breathe well, fight for me.
2: yeah and it I mean those like that moment in time I guess we were seeing in this like reckoning across North America like in media as well I saw that too with you know some journalistic awards here and it's like okay like, more Indigenous people, more Black people, more people of color are getting recognition at these awards ceremony. But then I wondered, like, is this just a 2020 thing? <laughs> like, right. is this going to have staying power? Or was this just like their political, like, where we get this for this moment? Exactly, but then, exactly. And I guess, like, what all of that makes me think of is in order to for things to have actual staying power or for underrepresented voices to actually be represented more in the mainstream, for example, we need to see those decision-making bodies be representative of, you know, Mm -hmm. not just one (laughs) group of people or not just white people. So the Academy is in a years-long effort to increase diversity by inviting more voting members, although still only slightly above a quarter are women, and the same for, quote unquote, underrepresented groups. What do you think it's actually going to take to see lasting improvements at the ground?
3: Yeah, this is a tough question to answer because my gut response is the whole thing needs to be dismantled and uh, rebuilt from the ground. And that's not just the Grammys or the Recording Academy. It's the entire music industry, which is a huge uh, mountain to climb. The thing that I think we lose sight of is that the Recording Academy is not it's a microcosm of the music industry at large. The people uh, who are members of the Recording Academy are the same people who manage record labels, they negotiate deals, they're routing tours, they're signing artists, they're the engine uh, that that makes the entire industry drive. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the issues that we see within the Grammys are happening outside of the institution as well within the music industry at large. And it's like, how do you fix the Grammys unless you fix... All of the other things that are happening around the Grammys. It's a complicated question because, um, the answer involves certain groups, uh, relinquishing privilege and, uh, um, admitting that they were wrong and building things again from the ground up. I don't think we can, uh, put lipstick on this pig for lack of a better term. <laughs>
2: I mean, if, if fans are pushing artists like Drake and The Weeknd to the top of the charts, but the Grammys aren't recognizing them, I mean, how relevant are the Grammys to music les- listeners? I mean, I'm thinking of, of all the artists that, that never receive a nomination.
3: Right. And I think the same, like any time I am researching for Marvin's Room, I'm constantly amazed at these great artists who either never won or they've never been nominated for a Grammy or they've been shut out of a major category. Like Gladys Knight, people who made huge impacts, Mariah Carey, like how do they not have an album of the year Grammy? Um, thing is, even though they've never won Grammys, they're not uh, any less relevant or any less impactful uh, to me as a consumer or a listener, and I'm sure to many of their adoring fans as well. So especially in the environment that we're in now where social media creates this direct to consumer environment where, uh, you know, me as a fan, I can go on Twitter directly and tell mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar that his album was definitely the best album of the year and changed my life. And the Grammys doesn't have to have anything to do with that. Um, I think because we're in that environment, the Grammys really is just trying to get in where they fit in. Um, I think there are a lot of people within the Recording Academy and the Grammys institution who believe that they're more important in this industry than they actually are. But I think there are a lot of artists and a lot of fans who are kind of like, we see how flawed this institution is. And really this relationship is is an A and B thing. It's fan and artist and we don't need anybody else to kind of uh, step into it. So the funny thing is, you know, the Grammys has been coasting on this reputation of prestige for several decades. And Mm -hmm. in order for them to remain relevant in a conversation that they're actually being shut out of these days, they need to take an honest look at themselves as an institution and stop relying so heavily on that reputation they've built because it is flawed and and really start making some structural changes or they will be left behind Um and i think they'll be the last to realize it too when they've been left behind harmony it's been so good to
2: chat with you uh, what a fascinating conversation and i i so appreciate your perspective on this
3: thank you so thanks. much it's been great speaking to you thanks
2: That's all for this week. If you haven't done it already, give us a rating and leave a review on your podcast app. It helps other people find out about the show. And thanks to everyone who's left a review so far. FrontBurner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Cindy Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Ali Janes, Katie Toth, and Derek Vanderwyke. Our sound design was by Mackenzie Cameron and Nurudeen Karane. Joseph Shabison wrote our music. The executive producer of FrontBurner is Nick McCabe-Locos. I'm Angela Starrett filling in for Jamie Poisson, and I'll talk to you again soon.
1: 93.1 CFIS FM, that is the Friday morning edition of FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 resumes, it is the Friday panel.
4: Friday, United Way of Northern BC is hosting a children's book drive. Drop off new or gently used children's books to help make literacy accessible for every child in our community. Books can be dropped off between 9 and 7 at the United Way office on 15th across from Parkwood. Santa will also be on hand for photos. Books can also be dropped off during regular office hours through December 23rd. It's Tree of Light's Gift of Imagination children's book drop off Friday from 9 to 7 at United Way.
1: The United Way Tree of Lights is back for another season. The tree is being lit up string by string as donations come in. You can make a donation by driving by the United Way office near 15th and Spruce. The first 50 people donating will receive a $10 gift card from Mr. Mike's. A donation of $25 or more could win you a hashtag local love package. Full details of this year's United Way Tree of Lights campaign are available at uwtol.ca. Contracted staff are going to be conducting targeted wildfire mitigation work in the city of Prince George. Fire fuel mitigation will take place in the Malaspina area starting in late December, around Brody Road in mid-January and in the Paderni Recreation site near the end of January. Each operation will take about 30 days, during which access to the areas may be restricted. Citizens are encouraged to follow all signage located near the work sites. For more information, visit the news link at princegeorge.ca. The Alzheimer Society of BC is presenting In-Person Education. Tuesday with Getting to Know Dementia. Enhance your knowledge about dementia and learn about the different types of resources available at any stage of the disease. To register or for more information, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. Getting to Know Dementia from the Alzheimer's Society of BC, Tuesday from 1 to 3.30 at the Prince George Public Library.
0: It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good snowy morning, Prince George. Uh, This is your
6: Friday political panel. We've got Herb Martin, Peter Ewart, Art Betke, and Eric Allen is actually joining me in studio this morning. So uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, so today, I guess we're going to talk, we're going to start off with something that is uh, quite a bit of interest, I mean, among our panelists, but is also very uh, important here in Prince George. We're talking about forestry. And uh, uh, so there's a new... Organization uh, that just started up called Evergreen Alliance, and uh, so they have the idea of, we ne- of the need to reform BC's forestry le- legislation. So, if we could begin, let's uh, start with Herb. What are your thoughts about this, and uh, and uh, what do you think about it?
7: Well, it's uh, pretty astounding. As uh, some of the articles that's uh, come out of it. Um are really um, uh, quite earth-shattering, actually. Anthony Britneff um, worked for the MOF for 40 years, and he, um, he goes into quite a quite detailed uh, uh, account of how uh, it has been uh, sub- systematically dismantled uh, starting in 1978 uh, with um, uh, the introduction of Mike Apsey, a, coffee, a former Kofi member, uh, as a uh, uh, deputy uh, minister, um, and then continuing on to the 2002, when Gordon Campbell completed the um, what he calls the regulatory capture of the Ministry of Forests, um, it makes for a distressing reading, and um, uh, it sort of uh, puts the uh, well, it, it describes how the the foxes have taken over the house, and um, really, it's not a, it doesn't seem to be a administered for the public good anymore, but for the industry good. Hmm. Uh,
6: Okay. So, what do you think, Peter? Do you agree with that assessment?
8: Uh, yeah, I think that uh, what Herb was saying is saying uh, is is correct. Um, I think that you know the fact that uh, you know this Evergreen Alliance has has come about and issued uh, various documents and so on. It uh, reflects the fact that uh, uh, many people believe we can't continue on in the old way regarding forestry. That we need a new vision. Uh, you know that. Um, puts um, people in communities more at the center of things rather than being in the hands of, uh, of the big big companies. And we're seeing this with the whole, you know, many a number of researchers are connecting the, the recent flooding to the massive clear-cutting that has been taking place. And, uh, you know, so I think that uh, that's what it's a reflection of, is uh, the, the fact that, that many people believe that the old way is has not worked and is not working, and we need a new way. And uh, as Herb talked about there, like one of the features of things is that uh, you have this merger between the big forest companies and the state and the ministry, uh, which is uh, not not good for the the interests of uh, communities and people and workers and so on. And, you, you know, you have that manifestation now, where it's in the hands of the big companies, you know, so much influence is in the hands of them. Yet uh, these same big companies are shutting down mills here and uh, starting up mills in southern United States and other parts of the world. You know, so, you know, we're, the big companies have um, a stranglehold on in terms of um, forest policy, uh, but uh, what they're doing, uh, in many cases, is, is not in the interest of British Columbia workers, communities, and people.
6: So, Art, what do you think? Is that a fair assessment that we've got uh, sort of almost, I mean, um, that we've given the, our force to the big forestry companies and, and, and to the government, and, and, and there's not really good management there? What do you think?
5: There's a certain amount of truth to that, but uh, no, it's... Um These Evergreen Alliance people, they're just uh, the latest version of the anti-logging environmentalists. You recall back in the 1990s, and they were... Slagging our industry, saying that uh, uh, we clear cutting and a forest we don't plant except for a few exotic species that don't survive and clear cuts don't grow back and you know we're the lungs of the earth and we're killing it. The whole world is going to suffocate for lack of oxygen if B C keeps cutting trees and. Uh, one of the contractors I knew, a logging contractor, he said, you wouldn't believe the nonsense his kids bring home. He didn't say nonsense. <laughs> from school, from the teachers. and But he says, I can take them out and show them what we're doing. But most people don't. So they're getting the false image of it. And uh, you would call it the teachers' union. You might not recall uh, the BC Teachers Federation or whatever, the union anyway. Uh, they were all concerned about this. They believed all the crap that was being spewed, and they called in B.C. Forest Service personnel to uh, tell them what was really going on in the forest. And so the Forest Service told them what was really going on, and uh, they were furious because you didn't present both sides of the argument. And then when uh, the Harcourt government was elected, uh, they oh, now we'll get the truth from the Forest Service, and they called them in again, and they got the same truth. And they were furious. They just wouldn't want to believe what was really happening in there. And then, you know, Harcourt himself, he believed a lot of that stuff, or else he just reacted to the bad uh, press they were getting from the environmentalists. And he was going to reform the way we do our logging in the province, and he was saying we should do it like they do in Sweden. Well, obviously, he doesn't know what they do in Sweden. Uh, In Sweden, clear-cutting is mandatory. (laughs) And uh, most of the... uh, Forest land is owned by private interests, mostly in small holdings. And uh, so it's uh, taxable land. And uh, if you do not cut your trees when when they are mature, your taxes go up.
6: All right. Okay. And
5: and the clear cutting is mandatory, even on private land. And, you know, I could go on and on about this. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of problems in our forests. uh, due to a lot of things that have gone on before, but I don't think these new reforms are going to make it any better, probably just going to make it worse again.
6: Okay, all right. I think what we'll do is we'll take a break and we'll come back with Eric. And uh, yeah, all right.
1: Canada Post has put a contingency plan in place to maintain postal services. While mail delivery continues wherever possible, you may experience some delays in receiving items. If you're sending time-sensitive items, considering using Express Post or Priority Service to help ensure timely delivery and be able to track the item at canadapost.ca. If you have any questions regarding postal services, contact the Canada Post customer service team at one 866 607 63
8: a message from the War
0: Amps. When you use a War Amps key tag, you protect your keys. If you lose your keys, the finder can call the number on the back of the tag. Or drop them in any mailbox. And the War Amps will return your keys to you for free. Order your key tags today at waramps.ca.
3: And make a difference in the lives of the amputees, like me.
4: Thank you.
1: Prince George Public Library has partnered with BCNet, a shared services organization to offer the education roaming service. This makes it possible for students, faculty, and staff to seamlessly connect to their post-secondary wireless internet network from public library branches. Our public library is the first in BC to offer the EDU Room service. It's the latest move for the library to close the gap in access to information as BCNet continues to expand EDU free Wi-Fi service for higher education and research forecast from environment canada for today mainly cloudy periods of snow this morning wind from the south at 20k gusting to 40 a high of zero with a wind chill this morning to minus 14 tonight cloudy the few flurries and periods of rain south winds gusting to 80 the temperature steady near one on saturday a mix of sun and cloud a 30 percent chance of flurries in the morning wind from the southwest to 20 gusting to 40 the temperature steady near zero with an afternoon wind chill to minus nine
0: Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS FM. Okay, we're back talking about forestry policy.
6: And uh, Eric Allen, you haven't weighed in on this. What do you think about um, this new Evergreen Alliance and the changes needed uh, to forestry policy?
9: Well, I haven't, I'm not up to speed on the Evergreen Alliance, but you know, there's so many groups out there and just. You know, I think that they have to get together and start speaking with one voice, rather than you know the old rule: you know, divided you fall. They've been falling for 20, 30, 40 years. Nobody's <laughs> listening to them. So, <clears throat> you know, they 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 need to get together and and I mean, the one thing that uh, government and big business thrive on is uh, is PR and uh, propaganda, and we're stuck in the middle. We have the. Uh, uh, big corporations propaganda, we have government propaganda. And to find the truth you got to wave through all of this and try to figure out where you, you know, where 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 are we? Yeah. Now I read uh, <clears throat> some of Art's, well I read it all actually, the message he had out there, and he makes reference to trees growing back in 80 to 100 years. Well, <clears throat> you know, if you want to do a little bit of history or something and see what's happened in the last 100 years, uh, you'd be amazed, like BC population, I just dug it out, was 524,000 people. Now it's 5 million. And, uh, you know, we went through two world wars, Iraq War, Korean War. We landed on the moon. We did all sorts of things. And yet we still have this idea that 100 years from now we'll be cutting trees. Now... I don't think the corporations think that because they're already moving to Sweden and to the southern United States where they have these plantations that get a tree in 30 to 40 years. So, you know, if the companies go, you know, the business and the jobs are going to go a not too far behind them. So we have to look at that. The other one I looked up just as a comparison, and that was the dust bowls in, uh, in the prairies in the 1930s. They called it the dirty 30s. And this was a direct result of not looking after the land properly, uh, uh, cutting down all the trees, not putting up any berms or anything. And basically they had horrendous uh, dust storms and that. They couldn't plant anything for like 8 or 10 years. It just decimated the country. People moved from Saskatchewan and the prairies all over BC and they went east and everything. It was just, you know, so if you want to know what happens if you don't get it right, read the Dust Bowl. Find out what (laughs) happens. It's not complicated. What we're doing in the forest today is a recipe for disaster if we don't turn around and start doing it right. And we don't have to clear-cut. You know, companies, uh, the big companies, have a very simple uh, philosophy. Maximum profits, minimum cost. That's what they do. But we're not getting the profits, you know. The agreement with the uh, forest companies back in the days of uh, uh, W.A.C. Bennett and uh, Ray Wollaston was jobs or trees for jobs. That was the agreement. We're now in a situation where they got the trees. We got no jobs.
6: <laughs> okay. That was very pithy. Um uh or do you want to respond to that like how and, and maybe particularly um how should the average Prince George citizen or the average BC citizen be looking at this and and how should how should the ordinary person who isn't really directly involved in the forest industry be asking their um elected officials when they're campaigning um or their uh, potential officials like what what should the average person be concerned about and asking what kind of questions
5: well, I wouldn't ask politicians so much. I'd ask the people who actually work in the industry and in the forests. So I think you get a better idea there of what's going on. Uh, I recall one fellow who actually worked in the forest uh, one time was... Uh, standing around waiting to go to work on uh, logging a right away for a new road and uh, one of the forest supervisors was standing there and he started berating him for not planting trees. And he said, oh, we plant everything. You don't plant nothing. He said, look right there beside your boot. You see that little green thing? That's a tree. And look over there. That's another one and that's another one. And then he started telling him all the stuff that the industry has to do in the site preparation and uh, tending the trees and every thing uh, before they even plant and after they plant and uh, the, he kept saying oh I don't didn't know that oh I didn't know that this is a guy who worked in the bush did know it. he drove through the plantations of vigorous healthy growing trees every day and didn't see them somehow the reason uh, these companies are first of all tough taking over everything big companies is well if you've got a small sawmill and you want to sell it who else can afford to buy it nobody so the big companies buy out the small companies and the bigger companies buy out the big companies and soon you have can for owning most of the trees in the, or the logging rights in in the province and they get a big increase in their cut because of the dead uh, dying trees from the beetle infestation, well, when that's all done, they get the cut in the annual allowable cut. They're not allowed to do as much, so they shut our sawmills because there just aren't enough trees being allowed to be cut. They invest in the United States and other places in Europe because there's no more expansion available here. We're contracting here because the amount of cut is reduced.
6: Okay. All right. Peter, what do you think? Is that is that a valid... Um, like, how do we uh, balance that... I mean, on the one hand, you've got to have a big company or you've got to have money, you've got to have trees in order to buy sawmills. And then, like, that seems to be a bit of a cycle there. Like, how do we stop that without um, chasing away investment and those big companies that can actually do the work?
8: I think it's it's a political question as well as an economic question. You know, the question is, like, who's making the decisions about forestry in the province? And, and I mean uh, forestry, environmental issues, the whole thing. And the, the reality is, is that for too long, you know, the big companies, multinational, globalized companies, are making these decisions. And I, what I think we need to do is have a rethink and look at ways in which we can develop mechanisms so that communities, workers, communities, small and medium contractors and so on, can have more say and more control over what happens to the forests around us. As, as things stand right now, uh, we're in the midst of this forest, but uh, basically we're alienated from it in the sense that the, the, the big companies control what happens to these forests, even though we have our communities right in the midst of them. Mm-hmm and and so on and uh, we we need we need a rethink in terms of who makes the decisions
6: but, because but how, who's
8: in the decisions right now is not being made in the interests of BC.
6: Okay, um well then I'll ask Herb like how do we balance that with like these companies uh, you know they're often huge multinational companies and how do, so how do we balance uh, balance this out so that we don't just completely get um, priced out of the market and and that we're actually participating.
7: Well, I think we have to start looking at um, the size of companies pretty carefully. Um, I threw out some numbers last week, but I'll go over them again. Uh, Dunkley Lumber pays $31.35. That, these are numbers from last year for, uh, per meter for stumpage. Um, Carrier pays twenty-one twenty-four. Winton, $20.86. Canfor, which cuts five times those other three combined, pays fifteen dollars and fifty six cents. So we're we're actually better off um, encouraging the smaller smaller companies, and uh, I mean they they're paying they're paying the bills for uh, for for ministry of forest for the forest industry, and if you look at uh, the numbers right now, the um, uh, price of lumber is uh, is approaching uh, its record again, and uh, the McKenzie Sawmill owned by Canfor, which is the world's uh, I think sixth or seventh largest sawmill is still shut down.
6: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Eric, what have you got to say?
7: Well,
9: firstly, when uh, corporations that are talking about the competition, they never tell you who their competition is. So you assume it's either Chinese or it's Russia or it's somewhere. In actual fact, they don't have any competition in North America. Canfor, Wirehouse, or, or Interfor, these guys, they got lots of mills in the U.S. Lots of mills in Canada. So, to give you an idea, and, and I'm not blaming anybody, but nobody looks back anymore. It's full speed ahead. And there used to be an old comic strip, and in there there was a guy called Joe Splitsink. And wherever he walked, there's this black cloud over his head. And <laughs> if he walked across the bridge, the bridge fell down behind him, and that type of thing. And basically, that's what we're in now. The whole country is falling down behind us, but nobody's looking back. To see what you know, what's really going on here. So, just a quick one. I, I just checked it out the other day, just as a matter of interest because we got all this <clears throat> conversation going on uh, softwood duties on uh, Canadian lumber, BC lumber to the United States. So, I asked the question: uh, Since the softwood lumber agreement started, how much uh, did the Canadian mills, BC mills, the Canadian mills pay in uh, softwood lumber duties? And uh came back and said uh, they paid six billion dollars in duties. And I also asked how much they got back. They got back five billion. Okay? <laughs> now isn't that interesting? They got five billion back out of six billion. So then you take what they actually paid in duties, extrapolate that over the number of companies that paid it, and it's a very small amount. Very small. Then if you go to the states where they own forty eight mills down there, Canadians own at least forty eight mills down there, they get a portion of what was paid back. So the real question is, are they paying
6: anything for duty, or is
9: it a (laughs) dog (laughs)
6: chasing his tail? A bit of a shell game, hey? All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back talking about Amazon.
0: The entire family is affected when a parent or child has a mental illness or substance use problem. The latest issue of Visions asks, how can family-centered care support everyone? Visions is a collaborative journal published quarterly by the B.C. Partners in Mental Health and Substance Use Information and funded by B.C. Mental Health and Substance Use Services. To read the latest edition of the Visions journal, visit the B.C. Schizophrenia Society's website at bcss.org. CNC has a new program available to guide
1: entrepreneurial-minded Indigenous youth on how to take their business ideas from concept to reality. The Way Hut Business Startup Program provides students with 12 weeks of training to gain the knowledge and confidence to start a business or further their education. Open to youth aged 15 to 29, applications and full details can be accessed through the link on the events page at CFISFM.ca. La Hut, Business Startup, January 17th to March 21st at CNC.
4: The Two Rivers Gallery Shop is having a special shopping night event on Thursday, December 16th. The sale runs from 5 to 9 and will offer a 10% discount to all shoppers and a 20% discount for members. It's perfect for all last minute shoppers and ideal to find find that unique gift for hard to buy for on your list. It's a special night of savings for members and the general public five to nine Thursday, December 16th at Two Rivers Gallery Shop, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. The BC Schizophrenia Society has launched its Cannabis and Mental Health video. The video
2: centers around questions regularly asked by youth across the province about cannabis, including the impact of cannabis on the brain and how it may affect those at risk of developing a serious mental illness. Visit bcss.org to watch the Cannabis and Mental Illness video. Go through the resources and find out how you can help share this information with the youth in your life.
0: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After Nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM. All right, good
6: morning. Uh, good morning, back. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Amazon, another big company. We were just bashing on the big companies, so um, we'll continue the the thing. And um, let's start with Eric this morning. What <laughs> what have you got? What do you think is Amazon like? Amazon was just hind- handed a record fine of one point, I think one three billion euros for. Um, abuse of business practices Uh, and we're just talking about small businesses is is amazon a good thing a bad thing has it allowed small businesses to access a wider market but then is it abusing its position and how do you actually deal with something like this i mean they've what i mean i don't know what the numbers are but they've really did well during the pandemic
9: it works really fine for amazon (laughs) and and they uh uh kind of led you to believe that this is something new you know but it's basically what they're doing is 10 15 20 30 years ago was called the spoken wheel and and you have your goods concentrated in one point and then you distribute them from there part of the problem i think amazon's running into is they're getting some pretty good rates from the postal service and you could make an argument that maybe we're paying for that the concept itself is not new it's like uh, you know um well, the problem with it is, is people will leave a package on a door and somebody steals it, okay? Now, when you used to deliver a package before, if there was nobody home, you took it back to the warehouse and you left them a note and then you delivered it again. Yep. Now, with companies like Amazon and that, they can afford to say, well, just forget about it. We either give you money back or we'll send you another one. And so, you know, if you think about this long enough, you're basically leaving, you're saying it's okay for people to come on your porch and steal your product, we'll take care of it. And it's not okay. So then a guy came up with a, uh, an idea that he would have this box there, and you could put it in a box on your porch. And they would sell you, I think they would sell you 20 code numbers. So the guy takes a delivery, puts in the code for the first three days, whatever that code's good for, puts it inside the box. Box is chained to the house, so the guy wants to take, thief wants to take the box, he'll pull the house along with him. So he's not going to do that. <clears throat> when you run out of your 20 codes, you buy 20 more. <laughs> <laughs> so now somebody else is making money on this. Oh the whole God. concept is terrible, you know. We should have jobs for people and that not, you know, it's like... I mean, I I I don't have a problem with delivering this stuff, and there's an upcharge if you're not home or if you can go down and pick it up. It worked fine. It's just that somebody's come up, fine tuned it. They're making all the money, and we're gonna we're gonna pay for it.
6: All right, er, um, Peter. I was gonna go with you. What do you think?
8: Uh, well, I think, you know, like when we look at something like Amazon, right, it's, it's not even a monopoly anymore. It's a, into an oligopoly, right? And it's so big, it's hard to describe, like 1.3 million employees with a huge influence over government and merging of government. Like uh, Amazon has contracts with the CIA and the Defense Department and so on, but besides all the other things that it's involved in. And I think one of the big issues facing humankind at this time is the whole issue of being able to restrict the powers of these great huge monopolies Mm -hmm. monopolies you know like we have a situation whereby um, they they trump nations now like their GDP and all this uh, like for example BlackRock uh, trumps pretty well almost all the GDP of most companies in the world uh, or most countries in the world like U.S. and China, maybe is mm-hmm. big, uh, so. Mm-hmm. So you have this uh, problem that we're facing, right? In terms of how do we build nations uh, that have uh, all-rounded uh, economic uh, development and, and so on, in the midst of this uh, situation where you have these oligopolies, uh, monopolies, cartels like um, Amazon having all having huge power over government and everything else.
6: All right. Okay, well, uh, I've got to go on to Art here. Art, you've got 30 seconds to make your case. What do you you think we need to do with Amazon? More fines? I,
5: I have no idea. The problem is they figured out the formula to be hugely successful, along with a lot of other online people like Google and Facebook and YouTube. And uh, they have the power from that, and what are you going to do about it? Uh, You can't really break them up because they won't work if you do that. And, you know, once you're you're so big that your name becomes a verb, like Google it, (laughs) you've got it, and nobody can compete.
6: Okay, well, that's it for After 9.
0: After Nine is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca.
1: Owned and operated by the Prince George Community...